I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start. Or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep Podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep Podcast I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention, and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. What Was That Like contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is a show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. What kind of person gives one of his own kidneys to a total stranger? Well, you're about to find out. Mark works as an attorney here in the Tampa Bay area, so he's actually not too far from where I live, but that's actually just a coincidence. I heard about his story and I contacted him because I knew it would be interesting and I had a lot of questions for him. I wanted to know how he found out about this person who needed a kidney and if they actually met in person and what led him to make the decision to actually do something like this for someone he didn't even know. I also wanted to ask him about his own risk assessment, since he only has one kidney himself now. What if that one fails? What if he needs a kidney later on? 
We also talked about the actual process, the testing, the surgery, the recovery, all the details. So if you've ever thought about donating a kidney to someone, this will give you the kind of overall information about what you might expect. If you want to contact Mark, I'll have his email address in the show notes for this episode, which is at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash zero five. Also in the show notes will be some resources in case you want to explore the possibility of doing this. I'm actually considering it myself. There's a huge need for this. And, you know, most of us are walking around with the ability to literally save someone's life. For me, it's just kind of hard to ignore that, especially after this conversation. I definitely learned a few things, and I hope you do too. All right, Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You recently decided to give away one of your kidneys. Was that process more difficult than you expected, or was it less difficult? Really less difficult. Um, I mean, it, it was an easy decision for me on the front end. I, I saw somebody with a need and 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 just decided to act and, and didn't really have any significant hesitation emotionally. And then the, the process itself of getting tested and approved was was lengthy just because there's some downtime along the way when you're waiting on test results and stuff. But within you know th- three months or so, I was approved and uh, had a surgery date about six weeks out from there. And, uh, and the recovery has been easier than I expected. Uh, it's been by far way easier, and I've gotten much more out of it personally than, than I would have expected. Good. Well, we're, yeah, I want to talk to you about that uh, a little bit later. That's interesting, though. If people are considering doing something like this, that, you know, if, they're, if the excuse that they have is, oh, I don't know, it's going to take long, it's going to hurt, it's going to be very complicated and all that, maybe that's, uh, you know, we can take away those excuses today, yeah. possibly. So what's, tell me first, what's your, your general life situation? Married, kids? Yeah. Uh, your health history, things like that. Can you tell sure. us a little bit about that? Uh, I'm 44 and I'm married. I've got three kids that are all in um, elementary school. And I, uh, I'm a lawyer, have a full-time job. So I'm busy with kids and work, but um, nothing else major going on in life. Don't have any other, um, don't have any health problems, no significant health problems in my past. That was kind of part of the thing that would make you eligible is the fact that you don't have other health issues. Is that yeah. right? One yeah. of the things they consider? At, at least no significant health issues that would complicate having this surgery. And, okay. and they do an unbelievable job of making sure that you don't have any problems that should disqualify you. And in fact, the, like the nurse coordinator that I dealt with a lot um, through the donation process has told me that over time, they've sometimes found cancer or other health problems in people that they didn't know about because of the organ donation process, because they do such a comprehensive health examination of CTs and x-rays and blood work, et cetera, that um, it's almost like every, everybody should should go through that just to, to maybe discover something that's wrong with them they don't know about yet. Right. Um, and, be, and essentially, it costs nothing anyway, right? Costs the donor zero. Not one. The only thing I've paid for through this entire process has been my parking at the hospital, which was three dollars <laughs> a day. That's it. Uh, the the donor program at Tampa General, and I think this is true of every donor program, makes sure that you don't have a single penny in medical expenses. Um, they don't even file with your insurance. Everything is just free. Because they definitely don't want that to be an excuse for people no, to not donate. They right. they told me at the beginning that if I ever get a bill from them, to call them because it was a mistake, and they will they will delete it. That's the, that's a sentence that everyone wants to hear as they walk into the yeah. hospital, right? But it, but it's good to know that if you if you need to donate to a friend or relative or to a stranger, financial issues are not um, a problem, and you may have a couple of weeks out of work which not everybody can absorb very easily, Mm -hmm. but either you can take vacation time or you can live with that. Or also your recipient is legally permitted to reimburse you for lost wages. So, so if you needed it and that was a hurdle for you, um, the recipient can at least pay you back for the time that you miss from work without pay, which, which is nice. And the same is true of travel expenses. If you were to travel 
and you have to stay in a different city for a week or two to do the surgery and recover, um, they're allowed to pay your travel expenses and for your hotel and, and those expenses. So while you can't sell your kidney, they they have made it so that some of those financial hurdles are, are eliminated, which is nice. Right. Yeah, I didn't think about, I mean, your situation was all local, but right. I didn't think about it. I mean, you know, the recipient might be out of state or something. Yeah, yeah. And, like I've, um, I've seen a story recently where a high school classmate traveled across country to donate to an old classmate who had posted something on Facebook saying, hey, guys, I'm going to die if I don't get a kidney, if anybody's willing to help. This guy said, hey, I haven't talked to you in 30 years, but I'll see if I'm a match. And he was, and he had to travel across country. And when you travel, you have to stay there for a couple of weeks because they want to make sure that they keep track of you and, and check on you and, and stuff and you're close by. And um, he would be able to, if he needed it, have his travel expenses paid. That's interesting that the person that's donating has to go through all these tests. And you've said that sometimes things are discovered that they wouldn't otherwise know about. So mm-hmm. essentially by trying to do something nice for someone else, they could have saved their own life. Yeah. There, right? Yep. That can definitely happen. The, the, anecdote that was told to me um, by my nurse coordinator was that they've they've found people with early stage cancer that they've caught early because they happen to have been going through the donation process. That's really cool. Yeah. Can you tell us how did you first discover the recipient? His name is Mac, correct? Yes. Yep. How did you first come across him and, and what he needed? Well, I was I was at work and was making a cup of coffee early in the morning, like seven o'clock. I usually get in, and I noticed a flyer up on the bulletin board, where you know you know the bulletin board we all have in our offices that has the uh, the minimum wage notices and the uh, the sexual harassment policy and all those things. There was the a, stuff nobody ever reads. Yeah. <laughs> so this flyer caught my eye. It was a couple that was dancing, and and the headline was, "Are you my type?" And that caught my eye and I looked at it and it said, are you my type, my blood type, I mean. And it said, my name is Max so-and-so. I have kidney disease and I need a kidney. If you're willing to help, call this this number. And it was his wife's number. So how did that flyer happen to come up in your office? So does she work there? Well, I didn't know this at the time, but it was the father, Mac is the father-in-law of another lawyer in my office. Oh, okay. And the, the last name isn't the same because it's an in-law. And I didn't really think about it at the time. I just assumed it was a friend or neighbor of somebody who worked in the, the office. I, I, didn't, I didn't know. So I called and talked to Mac's wife, and she told me who to contact at Tampa General to get tested, et cetera. And then eventually we figured out that her daughter-in-law worked with me at the office, and that's why the flyer was there. Okay. And so even though I don't have a – independent friendship with this um, colleague and had never met her family um, and never met Mac. That was the, they, they got this flyer into my office and that's how they found me. That's, that's what makes this whole story so interesting that you decided to just give one of the organs from your body to someone that you don't even know. What are the, what are the factors that you consider the pros and cons when you make a decision like that? Well, I just thought I have, I have the ability to save this person's life or extend their life or make their life better for some, for the time that they have left. And I thought there's gotta be a minimal risk to me because they do this all the time. People donate kidneys, not, not enough people do it. And a lot of them come from cadavers because people are organ donors and when they pass away, they get a a kidney or other, other um, things that people need. That's where the majority of them come from, right? Yes. Okay. I mean, the, this, I, I looked it up out of curiosity last month, and, and I'm using ballpark numbers here, but I think in the U.S. there were about 115 or 125,000 people that need a kidney, and there are only about 17,000 transplants for the year that I was looking at. And I think about 5,000 or fewer were live donors, so only about a third. And it was a, and when you narrowed it down, it was just a much smaller list of people that were donating to, um, to acquaintances or people that they didn't know. Most most people are donating to uh, a close relative, right, right. And, Someone you already have a relationship with. And living living donor kidneys are just way better for the recipient than a 
cadaver kidney. They, they take better, they work better, there's a higher success rate. So it's, it's good to have a living donor over a, a cadaver if, if you can find one. And why did, what was Mac's reason for needing a kidney? His were both failing? Yeah, he had had kidney cancer at a point and had part of a kidney removed. Okay. And then for reasons that I'm, I'm not com- completely aware of, um, over time that led to both kidneys failing. And so he had been on dialysis for two years. So he had been going about three, four hours, three times a week to dialysis. Which as, he, which, as he would say, is like running a marathon. It just wears you out that day and the next day. It's really debilitating to be on dialysis. Right. And is I'm not all that familiar with dialysis. Is it something that you can continue indefinitely? or No, it, at some point you're too sick for dialysis and, and, you'll, and you'll just die from, from the kidney disease. How what the world record is for time on dialysis? I'm I'm not sure. I, I know you just can't do it forever. Eventually, it it doesn't it doesn't work anymore. I'm trying to think the the thought process of someone who might know a person in need who is on dialysis, like Mac was, and deciding you know should I go through this process and and donate one of my kidneys to this person? Yeah. And I would think some of the rationale may be that well he's on dialysis, you know he can continue that. And eventually, you know, he'll find someone or it'll be a cadaver kidney and, you know, he'll get one eventually. But that's not really the case. People just die. Yeah. More, way more people die waiting for a kidney while using dialysis as a, as a stopgap measure than ever get a kidney on, on the waiting list. Yeah. Based on your numbers, we're like 100,000 kidneys short. Yeah. From what it, what we really need. And and in a country of I don't know 200 million adults, you know, we we can <laughs> we ought to be able to bridge that gap. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it's it seems like it's mainly just a matter of awareness. I th- I think that is a lot of it. I mean, you know, I think people think um well what if I need uh that kidney for for my parents or my children or my brothers or sisters, but the mm-hmm. the odds if you don't have that history of them having kidney disease to where they, they need a kidney transplant is so remote that that's not a reason not to donate to somebody else. And I think people might not understand how, how this is so safe and it's in uh, a quick recovery and you can live with one kidney for the rest of your life without any significant complications. Um, to, to me, and I know I just did this, so it's kind of easy for me to say, to me, it's a no-brainer. Um, I wish I could do it again. If, if I had three kidneys, I would give away a, a second one. Uh, it's, uh, we, we all walk around with the ability to save somebody's life. Yeah, it's like we're all walking around with a spare tire, walking right past people that have a flat tire. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's not as simple for everybody as, as, um, as I make it out to be. You may have health problems that, that disqualify you or, um, or, or you know, what, whatever other issues you have. But that doesn't ever hurt to get checked. And, um, there's a person out there that you're a match for mm-hmm. and, and you can save their life and change their whole family's life. Now they get to see their grandkids, uh, graduate from high school and, uh, whatever, whatever else they have going on. And so when you, when you heard about Mac, you saw that flyer, you called his yep. wife. Did you, did you go meet him? No. Or so what, what's the process? Well, I, I called in early March of this year and I talked to his wife and I didn't make any effort at that time to talk to Mac or to meet him. I felt like I would leave that with him for that moment because I wasn't sure what he was going through. I wasn't sure how much he would want to get to know me or to what extent he had had hopes that were dashed in the past by potential donors. I just didn't know. So I was a little bit standoffish. And so between March and mid-June, uh, which is when I got finally fully approved to do the surgery, I didn't have any contact with Mac at all. I just always was texting or having phone calls with his wife, and I was talking to the hospital people. Now now that you've met him after this, though, did you did, did he want to contact you during that time? Did, did he say that, or, or what yeah, was so he what, feeling? So what happened is, so once I was fully approved in mid-June, I told Bonnie, his wife's name is Bonnie, sorry, I told Bonnie, um, 
hey, listen, I would love to meet Mac and, and know him if he wants that, but that's up to him. And so far I haven't brought it up because I just didn't know how he would feel about it, but I'll leave that up to you guys. And she said, he would love to meet you. He's been wanting to meet you. I've been telling him about all of our conversations. Um, let's figure out a time when we can have you and your family over for, for dinner or have you all over to our house and you can meet the rest of the family too, if that's okay with you. And that's gotta be pretty exciting to, to yeah. go and meet him for the first time and for him it too. Was. Yeah. So, so in mid June, once that discussion was had, I then started texting with Mac a lot. And so we developed a texting relationship from mid late June until I met him for the first time on July the 15th, when I took my wife and kids over to his house and, um, and met, his wife and kids and grandkids, everybody was there for a, just like a little um, informal barbecue dinner. They all wanted to meet great. Mark, the hero. Right, right. Yeah. Which always made, makes me a little uncomfortable. What's the distance involved between where you guys live? 20 minutes. 20 minutes drive. That's convenient. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that makes sense. If uh, somebody put up the flyer in your office and they're a family member, then yeah, it would yeah. make sense that they're, they're nearby. Yeah. So, so once I met... So once I met him on July the 15th, I said, um, how about if we get together once a week for breakfast and we'll do it on a morning when you have dialysis and I'll drop you off at dialysis. So we did that for three or four weeks before the surgery. We would meet for breakfast in Clearwater at 8.30 in the morning and I would drop him off at the dialysis center at 10 and go into work late. And that's how we got to know each other before the surgery. Not, not to mention we were texting almost every day. Like, how are you feeling? What's going on with you? And talking about p- politics and whatever else, you know. So we we got to know each other pretty well in the the uh, the thirty days before the surgery. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV And her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com/what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com/what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1 And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. 
That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1, Daily Symbiotic, at seed.com slash what, code 25what. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. So it's, it, do you feel like you're almost, I know you're not related, but like he's almost family now? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, it does feel a bit like that. Like I definitely feel a connection to him and, and his family that, um, that I want to keep up. When you first told your friends or family or even your coworkers that you had decided to do this, what was the common reaction? Was there any <laughs> negativity or criticism of this at all? Well, there First, they usually thought I was kidding <laughs> because I think it's just a common joke to say something like, yeah, I'd give my left kidney if the, you know, the Bucks won the Super Bowl or whatever. <laughs> but I went through a process with that where I, I had only told for about two months, I'd only told my wife, my dad, my kids. And the reason for that was that I felt really uncomfortable telling people about it because I felt uncomfortable with the, the, um, kind of the praise that I felt like I would get, like I was right, like, you're looking, Hey, look what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. yeah. It kind of felt like out of the blue saying to your friends, Hey, by the way, I just donated a hundred thousand dollars to my church. What do you think of that? <laughs> right. I just made an anonymous donation, but yeah, that was me. Right. <laughs> I'm anonymous. So, um, so for a while I didn't tell anybody. And then I met with, um, in, in June, close to when I was fully approved, one of the, processes is they have you meet with a psychiatrist for 15, 20 minutes to just ask you, Hey, why are you doing this? How are you feeling? They, they just want to make sure that you're okay. And you're not being pressured by anybody or you're not feeling anything that you shouldn't be. And, and, and she asked me that question. She said, how your friends and family feel about it? And I said, well, I've only told my dad, my wife and my kids, I haven't told anybody else. And she said, what do you mean you haven't told anybody else? I said, well, I feel uncomfortable telling people because it feels like I'm bragging about something and I'm not in it for attention. I just, right. it feels like something that, and she said, you need to tell your friends and family, just, just tell them. So I started to tell people and in some instances, send out a text messages, text message to them saying, Hey, just so you know, I want, I, you know, I want to let you know something that's going on in my life. I've decided to do this and I'll probably be having surgery and a month or two and um, here's why I'm doing it and here's who I'm doing it for and, and that type of thing. And, and reactions ranged from, I'm really proud of you. And that's such a wonderful, selfless, honorable thing to do. I'm really in awe of, of you doing that for somebody to, what are you crazy? Why are you doing that? You don't know this person. <laughs> you know, I would never do that. That's nuts. Um, and, but, Otherwise, all positive. I mean, there was a little bit of that, wait, why, what kind of, that's crazy, but in a kind of a funny way. Um, my, my wife struggled with it quite a bit. Um, I th think um, because, and this was a mistake that I made, was not talking to her about it more seriously on the front end. I think I made that phone call and she had some concerns, but my reaction to her concerns was, what are the odds of me being a match? You know, what are the odds that he had had three or four other family members try and were not a match or couldn't donate for various reasons? What are the chances that I'm a match for this stranger that I've, that I've never met? You know, and I don't think that we really talked about it as, as much and as seriously about what her worries and concerns were until I was fully approved. <laughs> right. Um, then her concerns were suddenly real. Yeah. And so she struggled a bit with, 
well, what if something happens to you? You know, what if you died during surgery or any of those things? And um, the risks are so minimal that I wasn't worried about those things. But your loved ones still worry some about you. you know? So I had loved ones. I had parents who were worried about me in that sense because you're you're having surgery unnecessarily. Um, right. Yeah, there's always an element of risk. Yeah, sure. True. Yeah, but it's so minimal. Yeah. And compared to the reward, the payoff of what, yeah. you know, what you're able to achieve, it's, uh, yep. you're right. It's kind of a no brainer. And I had people that I would tell who would say, you know what, that means so much to me because, um, my father or my best friend from high school or whoever died from kidney failure. And I'm really glad you're doing this for somebody. Wow. Well, yeah, I can understand your reaction though, or, or your feeling, you know, that you're, why would I go and just tell everybody this? And just for the record for this podcast, I want everybody to know I contacted you, you know, yeah. I heard about the story and I contacted you. You didn't send me an email saying, Hey, uh, I'd like to come on your show and talk right. about this. Right. <laughs> and right, well, and at this stage, I'd be okay with that because, mm-hmm. um, I've come around from talking to Mac and, and other people. I've come around to the point of view that, uh, I should tell as many people as I can because maybe there's one person out there I talk to who is presented with a similar opportunity and they do it because they know I did it and everything was great. And right. so even though I still feel uncomfortable about it, it um, I don't react well to compliments and praise. It makes me feel a little uncomfortable. I don't, I make a joke of it and kind of deflect it a little bit. I've come to think that I should get the word out as much as I can because you never know. Maybe there are one or two people that, that I reach that are willing to do this for somebody else. Your, your discomfort with praise is, um, takes a back seat to the importance of getting the message out. Yeah. 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 What kind of testing did you have to go through? You said it was like three months. Yeah, it was three time? months, but, but that's with a lot of downtime between tests. So, um, first they, they make sure that you're the same blood type. So the first thing you would do is, go into LabCorp uh, or, or whatever lab, and they draw blood and make sure that you're the correct blood type and that you don't have any diseases that would be you know, communicable and, and be um, an impediment to donating. And then the next thing that you do is you urinate for 24 hours into a plastic jug. Hmm. And okay. that allows them to analyze your kidney function. So they want to make sure that if you're going to donate a kidney, that you have absolutely wonderful, perfect kidney function. And I don't understand the technicalities of it, but something about looking at a 24-hour span of your urine allows them to do that. And I ended up doing that twice because there was some weird reading in my first test that they thought was a false positive, um, and they wanted to confirm, and they did confirm that that was a false positive in the testing process. You have to drink a lot during that 24 hours. Well, you don't, uh, they're not expecting you to produce any particular amounts. They don't tell you to drink any more or less than you normally do. I'll tell you, you'll be surprised how much you pee in a day when you collect it. Uh, (laughs) They handed me a jug that that was a a full gallon. And I looked at it and thought they were joking. Challenge accepted. Yeah. (laughs) So I thought, well, maybe... Maybe they're not expecting me to fill this up, you know. And I think subconsciously I did drink a little more than I normally would. But um, well, you don't want to disappoint them, right? Yeah. yeah, but by the end of the twenty-four hours, I was worried that I was not going to be able to, to have space in this thing anymore. Wow. You know? <laughs> um, so you did that. Tw- I you, normally you would do that once. I did it twice, and then once you pass those hurdles, you have a couple days in a row where you're at the hospital for two, three, four hours at a time uh, where you, you get a CT scan. So they make sure that your, the kidney that they would remove, which is typically the left kidney, has good blood flow, good veins, and that your other kidney also has good health and everything looks good. They make sure that you don't have any other health problems in your body that you're not aware of. They take x-rays as part of the same process. And then of course, they, they take blood again, take a urine sample again, but just a normal one. And on at that same time, you also meet with uh, the surgeon that would do your surgery. And they answer your questions and explain everything to you and meet with a couple of the other folks that would be part of the surgery team. 
And one one good thing, and this is true everywhere for organ organ donors nationally, is when you go through that testing process and those meetings, the donor team from the nurses to the surgeons is yours and yours alone. They don't know your recipient. They don't treat him. Uh, there's, there's no potential conflict of interest there where they've developed a relationship with the recipient and might be influenced by their love of him and their, their need to find him a donor. They're looking out for you and you alone. And if that's the way it should be. Yeah. And so there's no risk that they're going to say to, to, to a donor, Hey, listen, this is risky and there's a gray area here. But you know what? Mac's a great guy, and he's got a wonderful family, and he's been waiting so long, and he's really suffering. Um, we really think you should go through with it. They don't know that person, and they don't have any emotional connection to them, and they can be objective and detached and, and, um, and make that decision with you. So sorry, I got off track, but that's, that's kind of the last of the testing. And that only took me three months because – they take your blood sample and you don't get the results for several days. And then you have to make an appointment to do the urine sample. And then once you do that, they don't get the results for several days. And then you have to make an appointment to come in and do the CT and the X-ray. And then they don't have all those results for a week. And then you have to go back and have a a follow-up meeting and set a surgery date. And, you know, next thing you know, even though you've only done maybe five, six total days where you, actually had to show up and do something a a couple months or more have gone by. Right. Okay. So it's not that onerous. It's not like it was three months of, of high intensity time consuming testing. It's just that it takes a little time to get everything done and get the results back and set new appointments because other, other people are going through the same process at the same time. So once you're determined that you're a match, how long before surgery is scheduled? Is it just based on the surgeon's availability or? It's, it's usually about a month or so because of the surgeon's availability. They have other people in the pipeline that are scheduling their, their transplant surgeries. So it's usually about a month later. And how long does the surgery itself take? I think my surgery was about two and a half, three hours. And, um, and the recipients was a, a little bit longer. They, the, the surgeon told me I had the biggest kidney he's ever seen and that it took longer to implant it in the recipient. Something else to brag about, right? No, no. It's like, where was Guinness when you needed them, you know? Right. So um, does the same surgeon do both, you know, taking it out of you and put it into him? No, because when they take the kidney out of me, they walk it across the hall and there's another surgeon there that's already been performing surgery on the recipient for an hour, getting them ready. Oh, getting them ready. Okay. And so, and then that, and then my surgeon is going to complete my surgery and close me up and make sure everything's okay with me while they're simultaneously putting that kidney in across the hall, so to speak. And it may be literally across the hall. It's definitely very close by. Very close. Yeah. 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 So they, so they stagger the surgeries with two different surgeons. So mine started at seven 30 in the morning and I think Max started at nine 30. And they're timing it up so that around the time they have the kidney available, it's about time they're ready to, to actually start to, to implant it into the recipient. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they've, been, they've done this enough that they have it down to an art or a yeah. science, uh, how long it's going to take. Like I think they told me that they did last year, um, at least my surgeon. Uh, so this was just my surgeon, I think, said he did 59 live donor transplants at Tampa general last year, if I, my memory is correct. Now, so obviously after both surgeries, you guys are both, you're still in the same hospital yeah. for recovery. Yep. Were you, were you nearby each other or in the, I mean, yeah. they didn't put you in the same room for recovery, right? Or No, no. Um, they, uh, so the recipient has uh, to go to the ICU for a day or two because they just need to keep a closer eye on them with, anti-rejection drugs and different issues that they may have to make sure that that new kidney is working well and being accepted. Um, so for the first 24, 36 hours, the recipient Mac was in an adjoining building in the ICU and I, and I was where I was and we didn't see each other. Okay. We saw each other the morning of surgery and our families waited in the same waiting room. 
um, after the surgery for about 24, 36 hours, we didn't see each other. And then when I was well enough to get up and walk, he was in a regular room at that point and I was able to go walk and see him. I think I went to see him three times before I was discharged. I can yeah. picture you walking in the room say, Hey Mac, how's the kidney doing? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> hey, I, I changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So were both of his kidneys removed? And now he has just yeah. one of yours or one? That was one surprising thing I learned is that they leave your old useless kidneys inside you when you get a new a new kidney, I know. So <laughs> he literally has three now. He's got three kidneys. You know, two of two of them are useless and one of them is a forty four year old useful kidney. Do you know the reasoning behind that? I mean, it seems like things would get kind of crowded. I I don't think uh, I don't think it's it's too crowded. And I was told that the it's just a completely unnecessary complication and and time consuming thing to remove the old kidneys. It would just be unnecessary to do, so they don't do it. That's certainly non intuitive, though. I never would have yeah. thought that. You know? And. And I, I think they may get a little smaller when they're not working and they're not in use. Um, just like they told me that my remaining kidney will get a little bit bigger um, as it increases its capacity to make up for the fact that I that I have one. So I had mm-hmm. the world's largest kidney already, and now it's going to get even even bigger. <laughs> now, for the donor, do them when you need them, you know. <laughs> for the donor, do they always take the same one, the left one or the right one? They usually take the left kidney, I was told, because that's just easier to get to. There are fewer other organs surrounding your left kidney than your right kidney. I think they can take the right one if they needed to, but and I don't have a percentage to give you, but usually the left. So there was a possibility that Mac's body would not accept your kidney. Yeah. Right. That w- yeah. there's a chance of that anyway, sure. and you don't know it until after the surgery. Right. If that would have happened, do you know what they do then? Do they give it back to you, or do they give it no. to somebody else? Or no, if it if it doesn't work out, and he were to pass away, or or just have the same problems and be back on dialysis, um, then that's just the end of it. You know, I can't so, get I can't get it back. Right. So they don't take it back out of him. No. Uh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder how often that happens. Probably not very often. I don't think so because part of the process of ensuring that there's a good match is that um, there, there are things about my, uh, my kidney that match up to, to his body. And, and, and I couldn't give you the scientific, scientific names behind it. Um, you know, we you just have, have to, to trust them that they know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. So, so how long were you in the hospital overall? About forty-eight hours or so. I went into the hospital at five thirty in the morning on a Thursday, and I left at three four in the afternoon two days later. So that's, um, that's not. I mean, that's fairly major surgery. That's yeah. That seems that, that didn't take long at all. Then I mean, it was about forty-eight hours from when I was out of the surgery. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> And I was told on the front end that most people stay about 48 hours. Some people stay one more night. So two to three nights in the hospital is typical. They told me that they had one person who stayed one night and went home the next day, which I kind of took to be a challenge, but <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't really try to, try to do that. I, I, I definitely felt like going home after two days. I felt good. And, and you felt like going home because you felt okay and yeah. you were just bored being in the hospital probably, right? No, I just, yeah, it just felt like, um, like it was time to get home. It's nice to have nurses there taking care of you around the clock. Um, but I felt like I could do it. I could do it at home and I was feeling good and it was time, time to get out of there. So, so I headed home on that, um, Saturday afternoon. And how long did they tell you to expect to be at home recovering at home, which is you're still recovering at home now, right? Yeah. So it's been, it's been one week today. And I'm feeling so good that if my wife would let me, I'd go back to work today. I, re- I really feel great after one week. And I can elaborate a little bit about the, the recovery process. But to answer your question, they told me to expect to be out of work for two to four weeks. And I think that was a little bit of a pessimistic prediction because I think they don't want you to underestimate and make commitments that you can't keep, you know. I think I've recovered more quickly than most people being ready to go back to work in a week. And I do have a desk job. I'm not out 
you know, doing construction or something, right? Yeah, it depends on the type of work also. Yeah. yeah. I would say typical is probably two weeks based on what they've told me and talking to other people that have done this. I think usually most people are, are ready to go back to work and get back to normal life after after a couple of weeks. Can you talk about uh, the levels of pain yeah. like after the surgery, mm-hmm. during your recovery? Uh, yeah. You know, how painful was it? Not as bad as I feared. Of course, they, they, do, they do it laparoscopically, which means they cut three small incisions just so they can get tools in to, to do what they need to do. But then they still need to make like a four to six inch incision down by, by I call it the bikini line, even though I haven't worn a bikini in a while, uh, <laughs> to get the kidney out. Because you can't, unlike an appendectomy where you can pull your old diseased appendix out of a hole and nobody cares. <laughs> You can't pull a kidney out of a little hole. It'll damage it. So they have to cut an incision large enough to safely get the kidney out and not damage it. So that wound for two or three days was was pretty sore, especially if I had to do anything that involved my midsection, like getting up and down, (coughs) coughing, (laughs) laughing, uh, sneezing, things like that. There would be a little pain in that wound, but it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. And I had plenty of pain medication for the first three or four days as needed to where I was totally fine. The biggest complication I had, and I had the same problem when I had an appendectomy a long time ago is shoulder pain, which apparently is because when they do a laparoscopy, they put some CO2 gas inside your torso. So that it gives them some space to work and to be able to see and when they close you up, there's some of that gas that's still trapped inside your body, and it apparently irritates your diaphragm. Your diaphragm doesn't like it, hmm. okay. and it doesn't interfere with your breathing, but there's a nerve that runs from your diaphragm to your shoulders, and you get what's called displaced pain. Your diaphragm is what's irritated, but your shoulders is where you feel the pain. And so for th- probably about four days, yesterday was day five, and it was my first day without shoulder pain. So for about four days, I had some fairly intense shooting pains in one of my shoulders from that process. And it was the opposite shoulder as I had before, but it was the same symptom. And it just naturally goes away after a few days. And did they tell you to expect that? Shoulder pain? Yeah, they told me that it was one of the possible side effects of having laparoscopic surgery. Uh, I think it's fairly common. But the, the shoulder pain was was worse than the abdominal surgery pains or, or anything related to that. Um, it was my shoulder pain was my nemesis for four or five days. And some people probably never even have that. Yeah. No, I don't think that happens with everybody. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. 
I got to go back and ask you about the location of the incision. You you described it as the bikini line, yeah. and I, when when you say that, I picture like below your abdomen on the front. Yep. yep. But when I think of kidney, I think of in your back, not right below your stomach. Yeah. So I guess they it's there's not much distance there anyway. They could pull it out either way, but is it really like located below your stomach, not in your back? Yeah, it is left of my belly button and below my belt line, kind of right along below where you would wear your pants. And why they take it out from that spot, I don't know. It probably has something to do with the fact that there's nothing vital right there that they need to cut through to to get it out. Uh, but that seems to be the spot where where they and they they have you on your right hand side during the surgery. Everything's being done on your left. So the laparoscopy incisions that I have are below my left rib cage. And then the, the larger incision was below my left belt line. Okay. There's probably a YouTube video that animates the whole process. <laughs> yeah. We should, yeah. should look at that maybe. I'm sure. Uh, what was Max recovery time and how have you talked to him? How's he doing? Yeah. He's like a new man quickly. And, and they told me that that would be the case that I would probably feel worse than my recipient the, the, the day after, uh, because he would feel so much better so quickly. Because when you put a live kidney into somebody that, that had <clears throat> kidney failure, mm-hmm. uh, they said, your, your kidney, when they hook it up, immediately turns pink like it should, like a healthy organ, and urine starts coming out of it. Because it that quickly starts to work in the new body. It's got some catching up to do, right? And it's starts to release whatever whatever chemicals kidneys release that are the magic dust that we all need to help clean our blood and keep us healthy it starts doing that in the recipient so max family was just amazed and i saw it when i saw him on day 2 his skin color had changed it was healthier he used to have crystallized toxins that would be coming out of his skin from the dialysis process that was gone he felt better. It was just like on day one, he was a, he was a new man, felt, felt better right away. That's got to be pretty rewarding for you to see that too. Yeah, it was, it was great. It was really wonderful. And his family felt like they had him, had him back like he was his old self. Now that you just have one kidney, what limitations do you have? Or what did they tell you to any activities you can't do or anything like that? Not, not much. On a day-to-day basis, your existing kidney takes over, works a little harder. Over time, it gets a little larger. And they say that you have about 80% kidney function, which is plenty, even though you only have one kidney. So it's not like you go down to 50%. You end up with like 80%. So on a day-to-day basis, as far as eating, drinking, normal exercise, urinating, everything's normal. Um, I don't feel any different whatsoever, even even now, having one kidney. So if you got up to urinate once during the night, each night, you're still going to d- keep doing yep. that probably. Same that won't thing. change. Okay. Nothing changes. So even though my kidney now has not probably gotten up to that 80% number, I don't, I don't know where, where it is, um, I don't feel any different. I don't have any problems. On As far as activities, what they tell you, two two things that stick out to me. Number one, and I don't know the reason for this. You can't take Advil anymore. I think Advil must just be more, um, you know, tough on your kidneys than some other pain relievers. Like I think if you have liver problems, they tell you not to take Tylenol. If you have one I've kidney, heard that. Yeah. yeah, you have one kidney, they tell you not to take Advil. Just take Tylenol or take uh, aspirin or whatever. And then they don't want you to do any activities that might cause traumatic bodily injury (laughs) because you only have one kidney now, right? So you want to protect it a little bit more than you used to. So if you used to be into kickboxing or MMA or skydiving or tackle football or any of those things where you're going to have body trauma or potential body trauma, they don't want you to do those things anymore. But as far as running and riding a bike and going to the gym and lifting weights and playing, uh, playing catch with your your kids and scuba diving and doing all the different things that we all do that don't have a high risk of traumatic bodily injury go go for it nothing nothing uh, nothing to worry about 
So you, it's not an excuse not to exercise then? No, no, it's not. <laughs> okay. If, if that's what you're looking for, uh, this isn't, uh, I did lose five pounds in the hospital, but I don't, I don't recommend it as a weight loss. <laughs> right. A little complicated. A weight loss program. Okay. Now what happens if sometime later in your life you need a kidney? Yeah. Well, if you have donated a kidney and then you need one, so you're in your, your candidate to, to receive one, you go toward the top of the waiting list for a, a kidney, which is nice. It's just something that they do for donors where if you've, if you've given up yours for somebody else, then we're going to look out for you down the road on the, the slim chance that, that you yourself need a kidney. And who, who keeps this list? Where is this list? Of <laughs> I, have no, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, there's a national registry and yeah, there, mu- there must be a kidney, the kidney foundation or something. Yeah. That, uh, and as, as far as I know, it's first come first served, but, but I don't know to what extent they give priority to people that have, you know, an immediate need. They're going to die next week versus those with, with, with more time to wait. Uh, I'm, I'm really not sure what the process is with being a living donor. I didn't get to be very educated about what the wait list is like and what the process is, because most of those people are going to get cadaver kidneys. They're going to get the kidneys from those of us that are organ donors who pass away. And, and that's what most of those people are, are going to end up receiving, which is not as good as having a living donor. The success rate's not as high. It's more difficult. But at the very least, everyone should be an organ. Yeah, uh, if you're eligible for that, which I think almost everyone is. Yeah, please. I mean, some some states are moving to to try to do an opt in system for organ donation, where you have to, when you get your driver's license, you have to actually, uh, or excuse me, an opt out system. You have to actually opt out of being a do- an organ. Donor, ah, that's a good idea. I like which, that. Which would be great. You don't have to actually do something. It's just assumed that you're an organ donor unless you tell us otherwise. Right. Right. Yeah. Which which would be a good thing. Knowing what you know now, I think I know the answer to this question. Would you do it again? Oh yeah, I, I wish I could do it again. <laughs> um, I mean, I one of related to that one of the one of the hiccups that I had, which was not a big deal, but I th- it was two days ago. So I guess on day four, I was home alone, recovering, and and just got a little sad, thinking, "Wow, this is it. I can't do this again." You know, um, I wish I could do this for somebody else, but I can't. And, uh, I, I would not hesitate to do it again. I would do it tomorrow if, if I could. And it's been a wonderful experience. That's quite a recommendation coming from somebody that has just done it. I get This is a kind of a tangential question, but thinking about going this whole process, going through this whole process and, you know, you saw a need, someone that needed something that you possibly could provide. You didn't know when you first inquired that you'd be eligible, but you were willing to take that first step. Have you, have you ever done, or do you do anything else like this? Like if you see someone in need, do you automatically think, well, how can I help help that person? Because some people automatically think, well, somebody's going to help them. Right. Uh, I don't need to do it. Yeah. But other people have the mentality like, you know, immediately, what can I what can I do? And I think that's, I think that's a mental outlook that some people have to, have you done other things like this? I mean, not anything this um, uh, big, but. Yeah, I, I tend, I tend to be that way. And this is getting into where I'm uncomfortable with. I know. I understand that going into it. I know. I, I am, you know, I've been a big brother and I've, um, donated a lot of time to pro bono work. I, I tend to try to help people when I can um, and donate my time to different things. Um, not to say that I'm a completely unselfish person. Um, of course. And, but I, I, I think I had a little of this in my DNA already. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it is. You know, some yeah. people are just, they're just like that. And, and I can understand you're uncomfortable uh, talking, talking about yeah. that, saying that, that, that you're one of those people. But uh, yeah, I think it's, you're right. It's something that's in your, it's ingrained in some people to just want to help. And it, it wasn't the first time I thought of the kidney thing. You know, when I've seen a news story, maybe a half a dozen or 10 times in my life about 
somebody who donated a kidney to a friend or family member or a stranger, you know, those feel good human interest stories you might see on the news. I've thought I should do that. I would do that. And then it's gone because there wasn't somebody in front of me um, asking, you know, and life's busy and we all have thoughts of I should exercise more. I should eat better. I should, uh, spend more time on charity work or, or go to church or whatever it is that you feel like you should do. And then you, you get busy and, and you rationalize it away or you forget about it. And I'll get to that someday. Yeah. So, you know, five or 10 times I've had that thought um, of, I would do that. And then when I saw this flyer, I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually do something about it this time. And I think I called quickly in part so that I wouldn't forget or talk myself out of it. That's a good thing. So if people are listening to this right now, don't put it off. Yeah. Go go do it. So let's let's talk about that. What if someone is interested in doing this and wants to I mean literally save someone's life? Yeah. What what's the next step they should take or who do they contact? What I would do to start is to contact the donor program at Tampa General Hospital. And there are other donor programs, but that's just a good starting point and they do a great job. Um, we could get the the website up on the website link up on your website. You got to consider this. The podcast is going to be worldwide. Yeah. So people are listening all over the world. There must be some kind of an organization or of course you, they could just contact their local hospital. They must have a donor program as well. Your local hospital. If you go online, will have a donor program and they'll have somebody whose job it is to field emails and phone calls from people that are interested in donating and they'll get you started. And I didn't take place in the. I didn't take part in this process, but there's also, um, in recent years, a trend toward chain donation. It's called, where, for example, let's say that my wife needed a kidney, but I can't donate to her because we're not a match. So I say mm-hmm. to the chain donation uh, system, I'll donate my kidney to somebody who can take it, a stranger to me, and in exchange. Somebody down the line in that chain donation will donate to my wife and will donate to somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. So, so as, a, as a way to get my loved one a kidney, I donate to a stranger who I'm a match with. And, uh, and that's okay. something else that your listeners could check into because they may not have a friend or family member that, that needs one, but they could be part of that chain and, and set into motion somebody who said, you know what, if somebody donates to... Uh, and it's a match for my loved one, I'll donate myself and, and so on. So the person that you know may get one sooner because of that chain. Right. Is that yep. right? Yep. Okay. That's really cool. I hadn't heard about that before. Is there anything else about this process that we haven't talked about that you think people should know about? You know, I would just say how how rewarding it's been to – to get to know the recipient and to, to, to know what a difference um, a small sacrifice by me has made in their life. I, I really, I, I feel like I got more out of it than he did, which is probably not technically true, <laughs> but I honestly feel that way. Like, um, you know, I get, I get choked up talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's understandable. It, are you and Mac going to continue uh, connecting with yeah, each other? I, I sure hope so. We've talked about still getting together together for for breakfast once every month or something, and uh, and he's talked about inviting the family over for different things. And um, we text each other still every day. I haven't been able to get out and, and drive and see him yet, but I will. It's uh, something that I'd like to do, and I think that'll happen. Sure. You guys have a connection like like very few people have. Yeah, right I know, right? I, t- I told him that in the fine print it said I have full visitation rights over my old kidney, so I can I can come <laughs> I can come see it whenever I want. Uh huh. As I'm as a lawyer, I'm sure you thought about putting that in as a clause or right, something. Right. Right. <laughs> Mark, it's uh, it's pretty tremendous what you've done, and I hope just hearing about how the whole process works that perhaps maybe someone else will hear this and. Uh, and decide to to do what you've done. Yeah, it's please. Um, it, it is 110% worth it, whether it's a, a loved one, a friend, a stranger, a friend of a friend. Um, I've heard every different story about how somebody ended up 
connected with somebody who needed a kidney. Um, and I haven't met anyone yet or talked to anybody online that has regretted doing it. So chances are good. It's going to be a, a successful project. Yep. So, All right. If someone wants to contact you, I have your email, which you gave me. I'll have that in the show notes for this episode. And thanks again. Yep, absolutely. If anybody has any questions, I'm, I'm happy to talk to them. Thanks for listening to this episode. My goal for each show is to introduce you to people and stories that you just won't find on other podcasts. If you want to help support the show, you just need to subscribe, and that way you'll never miss an episode. You can click on any of the subscribe buttons on the website, which is whatwasthatlike.com. You'll see all the links right there at the top where you can subscribe directly to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or on whatever app you use to catch your podcasts. And you'll see there are also links to Twitter and Instagram, so you can follow us there, and I hope you do. And if you really want to connect with me and get in on the discussion with other listeners to this show, you can join our private Facebook group. You can find that at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash Facebook. And of course, you can always email me directly at scott at whatwasthatlike.com or just go to the website and click on contact. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode or a previous episode. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you on the next show where we'll once again ask the question, what was that like?